Good morning again. You could turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. That'll be our sermon text for this morning, Mark 10, 32 to 45. Before we read Mark 10, let's pray together. Father, we come to you because you are our shepherd and you are the good shepherd that cares for your sheep. And uh, we pray that uh, as we hear from you, we would hear the voice of our shepherd as we read this, as we read your word. We pray that your voice would be clear. Uh, We pray that you would give me the words to say that I, as your under-shepherd, would shepherd this flock well and that you would care for all of us um, by your word and by your spirit. Um, Do pour out your spirit on us. uh, Humble our hearts, open our hearts that we will be able to receive your word and believe your word and trust in your word. And that we would be opened up more and more fully to the love that you have shown in the cross. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark chapter 10, beginning with verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Well, authority is a four-letter word for many of us. We believe that authority is bad. I mean, no one likes to be under authority, right? Uh, we, we watch the news and everybody from politicians to clergy abuse the authority that they have. 
And so we just assume that people are going to misuse their authority. And so we, we reject it as if it were bad in and of itself. Even if we would say, well, as, as good Christians, we don't reject authority, right? We know that we can't do that. Uh, but often we resent it. Children, uh, no one likes government or anybody else telling them what to do. Uh, children don't like their parents telling them what to do. Uh, employees don't like their employers telling them what to do. Students don't want their teachers or their administrators telling them what to do. Uh, drivers don't like speed limit signs telling them how to drive. Uh, hardworking citizens don't like the IRS telling them what to do with their money. We're kind of touchy about the way we live our lives. And yet God calls us not to abuse authority, of course, but not to reject it either. And Jesus, in our passage this morning, he does reject the abuse of authority uh, without denying its goodness. We've been looking at uh, the shepherd leader in the church and the role of elder uh, in the church. Uh, we looked at the, the role of the shepherd leader a few weeks ago, which we said was pastoral oversight, uh, particularly exercised through teaching and modeling. Last week, we looked at the qualifications of the shepherd leader. Uh, certainly morally, uh, what is required is at the very least a, a kind of baseline morality. If you look through that passage in 1 Timothy 3, uh, you know, don't be a drunk, don't be a hothead, be faithful to your wife, among other things. Uh, vocationally, uh, what is required is uh, some basic people skills, basic teaching skills, if you're to shepherd the flock well. Uh, this week, though, we're going to look at the authority of the shepherd leader. And we're going to see that the shepherd leader is a servant leader. The shepherd leader is a servant leader. So we're going to look at uh, first the abuse of authority, then the glory of authority, and then the, the abuse of authority, the glory of authority, and the goodness of authority. That's the third point. And uh, if you want to follow along, there's an outline on the back of your bulletin. You can take notes there if you'd like. We're going to look at a passage that doesn't speak directly to the role of the elder, uh, but it does speak about authority. And uh, it's true that in one sense, everyone has some kind of authority. Uh, even uh, children have a kind of authority, right? They, they grow in authority over their own bodies or over their bedrooms or over their possessions, right? The older they get. Uh, everyone has, has jurisdiction or the right to speak uh, over something. Uh, of course, with children, it's, it's an accountable kind of authority, accountable to their parents, but all authority is accountable, isn't it? Uh, only God's authority is absolute. Uh, all other authority is accountable to Him. But for all that, it's no less authority. And so this text uh, is going to apply to all of us in different spheres of life, um, but we're going to look at it asking particularly, what are the implications for the shepherd leader in the church? First, let's talk about the abuse of authority. In Mark chapter 10, uh, Jesus and his disciples are, are going up to Jerusalem. And uh, they're, they're on their way. Jesus tells them for the third time, actually, what is going to happen there. That he's going to be delivered over to the religious authorities who will hand him over to the political authorities. And he's going to be killed and on the third day rise from the dead. The disciples uh, get that Jesus' kingdom is about to come in glory somehow, uh, though it's clear that they don't understand the details, but they know that it's coming. 
They know that this is it. Something big is about to happen. And so the brothers, James and John, ask Jesus for positions of honor in Jesus' glory. When uh, the rest hear about this little exchange, they're indignant. Uh, they're upset because, uh, of course, they didn't think of it first. And so Jesus gathers them together and he says, here's the way the rulers of this world act. They lord it over others. They exercise their authority over them. But that's not the way it's supposed to be in Jesus' kingdom. Those who are great must become servants. Those who wish to be first must become the slave of all. Why is that? Well, because that is the standard that Jesus himself set. Verse 45 tells us, Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Well, what do we learn uh, from this about the misuse or the abuse of authority? Well, three times in Mark's gospel up to this point, three times Jesus has talked about his upcoming cross and resurrection. The first time, Peter rebukes him for saying that he's going to go to Jerusalem and die. The second time, the disciples argue about who is the greatest. And now, James and John. What do James and John want? Well, they want one to sit on Jesus' right hand and one to sit on his left. They want the positions of honor. Why do they want it? Well, who doesn't want to be honored? Right? Who, who doesn't want to be made much of? Who doesn't want the respect and the deference and the praise that often comes from having a position of authority? Whether you're elected as your high school class president or the president of the United States, right, the office allows you to hold your head high. And James and John don't say, uh, look, Jesus, we think we could do a lot of good if you place us one at your right and one at your left. Right? This is not selfless public service. Uh, this is selfish self-promotion. One commentator actually suggests that James and John ask this question out of pure snobbery. You see, back in Mark uh, chapter 1, we were told that James and John's dad was wealthy enough that he could hire servants. He had servants of his own. And so this commentator suggests that they snobbishly thought their social superiority entitled them to the first place. Maybe. Or maybe, having been a part of Jesus' inner circle so often, they thought that they had precedent on their side. Whatever the case, they were looking for the first place in this earthly kingdom. The rest of the disciples are no better, of course, right? They are indignant. They feel like they've been wronged. Why, have, why do they feel like they've been wronged? Well, because they want the same positions of honor. They don't want to be under James and John. What makes James and John so special? And this is often our attitude toward authority, isn't it? We assume that authority makes you somehow better than, and so we pursue position so that we can be better than, and then we resent those who have position and feeling wronged because they're in the position and we're not. Jesus says this is the way the world looks at authority. This is the way authority is viewed in the present age. Uh, this is the way the Gentiles act, he says. Look at verse 42. He says, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Uh, another commentator pointed out that this would have been a sore spot for Jewish people who were living under Roman rule. And they knew well the abuse of authority. 
Jesus is saying to his disciples, you're acting no different than your oppressors. When Jesus talks about lording it over and exercising authority, of course, he's not condemning the proper use of authority. We'll come back to that. Uh, but he's talking about the way we often flaunt our authority, the way we often abuse those under us. Greatness, according to the world, according to this age, is found in being served. The test is, how many people can I control? How many servants are at my beck and call? On how many people can I impose my every whim? But this is the abuse of authority. To be self-seeking. To use our position and power for the purpose of self-promotion. To throw our weight around for our good and our glory. Do you know why we often do that? Why do we strive for position and for power? Because we believe Satan's most basic lies. We believe that, that God doesn't love us, that we're on our own, that we have to complete life ourselves apart from God. God doesn't love you, so, so you need to prove yourself. You're on your own, so you better get all the power you can. You have to complete life yourself, and we often see position and power as ways of doing that, ways of getting what we want. Worldly glory replaces glory that we could have with our Father in heaven. So we strive after position and power as ways of making life complete, of finding fulfillment, of making our lives whole, of finding acceptance and security, the acceptance and security for which we long. That's the abuse of authority, right? The abuse of authority is, is being self-seeking, self-promoting, misusing it for self, for the good of self, for the glory of self. Let's look at the true glory of authority. There is a glory to authority. We, we want office and position in order to hold our heads high. Uh, there is a glory, but it's not what we think. James and John are seeking glory. Right? They say, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus doesn't say, there is no glory. He says, you don't know what you're asking. You don't get it. And then he asks this question in verse 38. He says, are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? The cup that Jesus is referring to is mentioned throughout the scriptures. He's referring to the cup of God's wrath. Psalm 75 says, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it to the dregs. Isaiah calls it the, the Lord's cup of wrath and a cup of staggering. Jesus' reference to his baptism is similar. Uh, Luke 12, verse 50, Jesus says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and oh, how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Jesus is echoing passages like Psalm 124, which uses the figurative language of a flood sweeping us away and of torrents and, and raging waters going over us to refer to troubles and trials. When Jesus refers to the cup, he's referring to the outpouring of God's wrath. When he refers to his baptism, he's referring to being overwhelmed with trouble. And both the cup and the baptism then refer to the cross, the very place Jesus is headed, the very place he just told the disciples he was headed. 
And Jesus is asking James and John, can you endure the terrible trial that I am soon to endure? Now, in, in Greek, uh, you can ask a question in multiple ways, and one way assumes a positive answer, and another way assumes a negative answer. Jesus' question in verse 38 assumes a negative answer. Of course they can't drink Jesus' cup. Of course they can't receive Jesus' baptism, because they cannot die Jesus' death. They cannot suffer in Jesus' place. He came to suffer in theirs, after all. They will suffer as followers of Jesus. James would lose his life. John would be persecuted for much of his life. To that, Jesus concedes. But there is no crown without a cross, no glory without suffering. Though it seems clear that James and John still don't get it. Nevertheless, Jesus says to sit at his right and his left is not for him to grant. And as we read through Mark, it's important to keep Jesus' words in mind. Because the imagery of the cup and of the right and the left come together at Jesus' crucifixion. Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. You may remember the night before the cross, Mark 15. He says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. The next day, Jesus goes to the cross. We read in Mark 15, And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. You see, here is where Jesus comes into his glory. Here is where Jesus is publicly proclaimed as King of the Jews. Here, Jesus has one on his right and one on his left. James and John really had no idea what they were asking for. Here, Jesus drinks the cup of the Father's fury against sin. Here, Jesus is overwhelmed with trouble. Here is Jesus' glory. Jesus' glory is the cross, right? There he bore our sin. There he paid our ransom. There he purchased our freedom. There he suffered our punishment. There he won our forgiveness. Here is Jesus' servant glory. Here the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve. And here he gave his life as a ransom for many. See, the true glory of authority is not lording it over others but humbly serving others. The true glory is not boasting in high position, but in taking the low position, the position of a servant. The world glories in how many people you can get to serve you, how many friends you have on Facebook, or how many followers you have on Twitter. But Jesus' glory was how many people he served. For this the Father rewarded him. We heard it in the Philippians passage earlier where Paul encourages us to have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him And bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, it's because Jesus is the great suffering servant 
that the Father gave him all authority in heaven and on earth, the name that is above every name. Now, if we are ever to submit to King Jesus, this truth of his service must first grip our hearts. Jesus gained authority through service. Jesus is Lord because of his service through the cross. And this is what woos us to submit to Jesus' authority. This is what removes a rebellious spirit and alleviates our autonomous bent. This is what enables us to live lives of service toward others and not service of self. In the cross, we see clearly the Father's love. We know that we are loved because of what Jesus came to do. In the cross, we see clearly Jesus, the Son, come to be with us, come to suffer with us, come to suffer for us. We know that we're not alone. And therefore, our life is in better hands than ours. We don't have to pursue position and power. We can serve others out of a life that is already complete in Jesus. And you can see maybe why this is so important that, that those in positions of authority then understand the gospel. Leaders need the gospel if they're going to be servant leaders, not self-serving leaders. If I'm an elder in the church for the glory, then I'm an elder for selfish reasons. If I'm an elder for the money, then again, it is selfish. If I just love power and control, well, then it's still selfish. If I want to be a leader in the church because I think, well, maybe if I'm a good leader in the church, then God will love me. Well, it's still a self-centered motive. I need to know God's love for me at the start. I need to know the, the God whose glory is intoxicating who provides for the needs of his children, whose power and control are so great that all else is meaningless in comparison. I need to know the God whose love is not dependent upon my church activity, but was demonstrated and secured in the cross. And once I know that God, I can begin to demonstrate the true glory of authority by serving, by sacrificing of myself for others. Leaders who use leadership for self miss what leadership is all about. All true leadership is servant leadership. And as modeled in the cross, it requires sacrifice. Servant leadership means you look to put into life more than you take out. So parents must sacrifice for their children. Teachers give of their time and energy for their students. True leaders, even in business, sacrifice. They work hard. They put in the hours for the sake of their business. Our loyalty to a company, right, is often, uh, often it comes from good customer service, right? Were they willing to go the extra mile for us? Elders must give of their time and their energy for the church, shepherding the church, getting to know the sheep, learning to feed others on the word of God seeking to lead the church faithfully, studying both scripture and on some level even culture to protect the sheep from the prevailing lies of the evil one. If what the shepherd leader does is provide pastoral oversight, as we said a few weeks ago, principally through teaching and modeling, then the mode in which he does that is as a servant. He teaches and models as a servant. Or, or put it the other way around, the way the elder serves is through giving his life to know and feed and lead and protect the flock using the word of God. 
Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. That phrase, keeping watch, uh, actually implies to to go sleepless, to, to put in tireless effort, to remain alert, to remain watchful. This means a good elder reflects God's character as seen in Psalm 121, that great psalm, Psalm 121, which says, He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Paul speaks at one point of his many sleepless nights and the daily pressure on him of his anxiety for all the churches. Now, in one sense, as we've said, almost every legitimate calling is servant service-oriented. Whether you're a grocer or a researcher or an artist, each is serving others in some way by providing groceries, or by seeking to expand human knowledge, or by making thoughtful, provocative artwork, all for the sake of meaningful human flourishing. And if that is so, how much more the elder, who is called to lead, in part, by example. He is to be build, not to be building his own little kingdom, but serving others by seeking the good of those under his care. Which brings us to the next point. We've looked at the abuse of authority, which is in being self-seeking. We've looked at the glory of authority, which is found in self-sacrifice. Now we'll look at the goodness of authority. (coughs) It might seem like instead of abuse, I'm advocating abdication. And yet to the contrary, someone who has legitimate authority but refuses to exercise it is really no better than one who abuses it. The only thing worse than a leader who both uh, abdicates is the only thing worse is a leader who both abdicates his authority and abuses the privileges of his authority, who abdicates his responsibility and abuses the privileges. A shepherd, like is talked about in Ezekiel, who does not feed his sheep, but rather feeds on them. Jesus here seems to contrast service with authority. One commentary even says, in light of this passage, therefore, there is to be no hierarchy in the church. Now, if by this they mean that we all stand equal before God, I can give a hearty amen. But if by this they mean that no, there is no authority structure in the church, that's not the case, not even from this passage, for at least three reasons. The first is, uh, in this passage, when Jesus talks about exercising authority in verse uh, 42, negatively, uh, the word that is used for authority there is actually not the normal word in the New Testament for authority. Uh, It's a word that's only used twice in the New Testament, here and in the parallel passage in Matthew. And uh, the word itself may mean a distorted authority or an abuse of authority. Second, uh, Jesus here, he compares his servant leadership in his kingdom, uh, he, he compares servant leadership in his kingdom to his own servant leadership. And if this passage then negates leadership, if it negates authority in the church altogether, well then it negates Jesus' leadership and authority in the church, which would be a bit problematic. Uh, third, the rest of scripture, as you read through the Bible, implies the goodness of authority. 
beginning with Jesus himself. Right? Jesus in Mark, uh, we're told that Mark 3, that he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles. And he sent them out to preach and have authority. In Matthew 19, Jesus says to the twelve, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now, I don't pretend to understand the new world to come, uh, but it seems clear that even in that new world, Jesus teaches there will be some authority structure. Twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes. So the issue is not whether, uh, whether authority itself is legitimate, but how it should be used. True authority should not be self-serving, but self-sacrificing. That much we've seen. And though it may be implied in what we've said, we need to add one more thing. Jesus says he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came not seeking his own good, but seeking the good of others, our ransom. The goodness of authority is that it is for another's good. Jesus says all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him, which means if you have any authority in any sphere of life, it is from Jesus. It means he has authorized you to act or to speak in a given area for the good of those under your authority. Authority is a stewardship of something or someone in God's world for the good of the people in the world. Authority is being authorized by God to act in his world for the good of his people. And so authority is for the good of those under authority. And now think about the authority of elders. Hebrews 13, 17 again says the elders' authority has to do with keeping watch over our souls. So the elders' authority is for the spiritual good of God's people, for their growth in holiness, for their training in righteousness, for their protection from false teaching, for encouragement in difficulties, and so on. And that means all the elders' powers are to be exercised to that end. See, power and authority are not really the same thing. If authority is having the right to act, power is having the ability to act. And whatever power elders have, it must be used for the good of the church. And first and primary, the elder exercises a persuasive power in his teaching role. So Paul talks about this power actually pretty extensively in the book of 2 Corinthians. Uh, he says in 2 Corinthians 4, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. 2 Corinthians 10, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but we have divine power to destroy strongholds. 
We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. What this means is the the elder's goal, our goal, is to persuade you of the truths of God's word. We state, proclaim, persuade, appeal, implore, so as to destroy arguments and opinions and take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. As we sometimes put it in Presbyterian circles, uh, the elder's power is not legislative. We can't make stuff up, but ministerial and declarative. We have the authority to administer and declare God's word. That's it. We can tell you what God says. We might do that in all kinds of ways. We might do it in a public setting like this. We might do it in a small group Bible study. We might do it in a one-on-one conversation. But it all comes down to teaching Scripture and declaring what God has stated. So the elders have been given this, this power of persuasion to fulfill their shepherding task. But the other power that's often spoken of uh, with reference to elders is the power of the keys, the keys of the kingdom, right, that are mentioned in Matthew chapter 16. And this, this power of the keys, it's also talked about in Matthew 18 and in John chapter 20 and 1 Corinthians 5 and 2 Corinthians 2 and 4, all, all over the place it's mentioned. And that is that the elders have a responsibility to admit people to membership, so bearing witness to their salvation in Christ by accepting them into the Christian community. So that, this is called the keys of the kingdom, right? Because it's about sort of opening the door to the church. And at times, it of course means excluding people from membership as a way of saying that that we cannot bear witness to your salvation because of something either in your beliefs or in your life, there's something there that we can't say, you are a Christian. And so that's one of the reasons we take church membership kind of seriously here. Because when people join a church, rightly so, that gives them some assurance. I mean, you hear people say all the time, sometimes wrongly, they say, well, I'm a member of a church, right? Being a member of a church, joining a church gives you some level of assurance. Not that church membership saves you, right? Hear that loud and clear. Church membership does not save you. But by admitting someone into the church, the elders are saying, we believe this person knows Jesus and trusts in him. And that is and should be an encouragement. Well, what does all this mean for those who are under authority? Well, at the very least, in respect of leaders in the church, uh, the words of the writer of Hebrews, again, are clear. Hebrews 13, 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Gotta love that last part. Uh, The words uh, obey and submit actually could be translated trust your leaders and obey them, uh, which implies knowing who your leaders are, having some relationship with them if you're going to trust them. Makes no sense, of course, to elect elders and then to ignore them. It's of no benefit to you, the writer of Hebrews says, which is really just a nice way of saying it would actually be spiritually harmful to, to, to ignore your leaders. Rather than trust... Rather than that, trust your leaders, right? Take their spiritual advice, respect their decisions in the church. 
Now, there are at least two areas, primarily, in which the authority of the elders is manifest in the church, right? In their teaching and application of Scripture, on the one hand, we've mentioned that a number of times, but also in their making more mundane decisions, which we often have to make practically, right? About meeting times or study material or the order of service and so on. General the decisions about the direction of the church. And in both of those areas, of course, you're welcome to disagree with us. But to obey your leaders and submit to them means even when you disagree, even when you voice that disagreement and we talk about it, you're still willing to go with us. To trust God and to submit to uh, the elders that he has placed over you, even when sometimes our decision will be wrong, because it will be sometimes. I guarantee we're going to make wrong decisions. But obedience is never obedience when it's dependent on your agreeing. That's not obedience. Of course, the million-dollar question is, well, what does that look like? And two uh, brief examples, right? So uh, here's, here's a, a pretty benign example, right? If we set the service time at 9.30, which we have for the summer, and, and you really think it should be at 9.45 because you want 15 minutes extra of sleep, uh, th those are the things that churches fight over, right? Uh, it means maybe you voice your disagreement. Come on, Luke, we really want to sleep in 15 more minutes. Uh, but then you submit to our decision, which you have this morning because you're here. It means also if we teach the doctrine of election, which we do in this church, and you disagree, that's okay. Right? You can disagree with us. It's fine to disagree. It's fine even to talk about it. But it means you don't cause trouble. Right? You don't make us stink. You don't stir up division in the church over that disagreement. Now, the problem with both of those examples is that they're too benign. They're too easy. All I've really said is don't grumble and gossip about the management. The relationship between the shepherd and the sheep, though, is really tested when we have to call you out for something. When there's some sin in your life, some big sin, and it's come to our attention and we need to say, look, you need to come to repentance about this thing. The question is, what will happen then? How will you respond? How will your loved ones respond? That will work if we create a culture of openness and humility and confession and repentance in the church. These are the kinds of things, of course, that can leave one bitter if not handled well, which is, again, a reason to pray for your elders. Pray for us often. But if we leave the church safe in the sense that we never touch on sin, we never touch on personal sin when it becomes an issue, well, that will be easy, but we won't grow. If we press into the hard places together, God will bless that, and we will bear spiritual fruit. God calls members of churches to obey their leaders and submit to them in spiritual matters. What does all this mean when you are in a position of authority, when you are in a position of leadership, whether in the church or outside the church, whether parents or business leaders or politicians or school teachers or elders? Well, you are a steward of Jesus' authority. Right? Your, your authority is, derives from him. You are called not to serve yourself, but to use your position to serve others for their good. Be wary of self-interest. 
Be wary of the temptations to serve for money or for power or for fame or for mere comfort. Have this mind in you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And as Peter puts it in 1 Peter 5, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that, that at the proper time he may exalt you. Let's pray. Our Father, we do pray for humility. Uh, humility, which we know is a gift of your spirit. It's uh, not something that we do naturally. We naturally think highly of ourselves. We naturally trust in our own abilities and our own wisdom and our own decisions. And yet the scriptures tell us there is a way that seems right to a man, but that's the way that ends in death. Help us to be humble, Father, to submit to you by submitting first and foremost to your word, and then to all of those who you have put over us in any sphere of life, so that you would be honored and praised as we serve you in all the things that we do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.